Lord, we do thank you that we are your beloved. Blows us away to think that the creator of the universe who knows every wicked, vile thing we've ever done loves us anyway. He that knows us best loves us most. We thank you for that incredible grace. We thank you that you have chosen us, adopted us, accepted us, redeemed us. Lord, I pray right now as we go to your word that you would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us tonight. Amen. Decrease that your spirit would increase that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. Great to have you here. If you don't have your Bible, if you didn't raise your hand earlier, raise your hand now because you're going to need one. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 21. Continue our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. It is on. Okay. All right. One of the questions I've been getting a lot lately, I've I've always gotten it, but I've I've been getting it a lot lately, and I'm going to take a, as we're going through the text tonight, I'm going to do something not not greatly different, because I'm just going to teach the Bible. That's the only thing I know how to do. But what I wanted to do is, I've heard this a lot lately, you know, Pastor Dave, especially in Old Old Testament, how in the world did you get that out of that chapter? Now, I, now that you've said it, I, I see it, but when, you, when I read it, I didn't see any of that, and now, I, what's up? And so, what I want to do tonight, I'm going to go through, and we're going to talk about Deuteronomy 21, but part of what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain to you some of the process of how to study the Bible in an effective way, Okay. I'm going to teach you the text more than anything else, but I will point out a few things that will hopefully be eye-openers to help you understand. Now, one thing, that, what, one thing that cannot change, the way that you see things in the text is to spend time in the text. People ask John Corson, John, Pastor John, how do you get so much out of the text? He says, well, if you were in it as much as I was, you would too. And if you read it once and I spend 25 hours in it, I hope I'm going to get more out of it than you do. Amen. So Deuteronomy, we'll talk about this as we go, but Deuteronomy, we're going to continue to look at Moses' farewell, farewell address to the children of Israel. He's about to send his children in the faith, in a sense, into the land of promise. He's not allowed to go in because of his own sin, because he'd smote the rock, he'd misrepresented God, he'd represented God as being angry with the children of Israel when he was not. The first ten chapters of Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, he reminds them of all the shortcomings of the previous generation worshiping golden calves, sexual immorality, wanting to go back to Egypt, all those types of things. He's teaching the next generation so they don't follow in the same mistakes. Sadly, most of us don't want to learn by others' experiences. We want to do it ourselves. Isn't that true? You know, your kids say, well, yeah, well, you got to mess up. It's my turn, you know, that kind of thing. But instead of just learning from that previous generation, and and the last mistake that they made, not the last, but the greatest mistake that led to their downfall, was they refused to enter into the land of promise, because they saw the size of the giants and said, we're not going in, they're just too big. They didn't realize, again, the greatness of their God. We can look at our circumstances, they'll seem overwhelming if we look at it from a physical point of view, but if we look at it from a spiritual one and realize how great our God is, we'll realize how nothing is too great for Him. So tonight's chapter, we're going to continue the instructions for the children of Israel as they enter into the land of promise. Now, the last couple of weeks, he's been preparing them that when they get into the land of promise, things are not necessarily going to be perfect. He said when you get there, there's still going to be battles, there's still going to be warfare, there's still going to be trials, there's still going to be people worshiping false idols, there's still going to be temptation. And we know that the Spirit-filled life, or being crossing over the Jordan, that's what it's a picture of, is being filled with the Spirit of the living God. 
Deliverance out of Egypt, salvation. Crossing over the Red Sea, water baptism. Wandering in the wilderness, the sanctification process. Crossing over the Jordan, being filled with the Holy Spirit. But even though we've been filled with the Holy Spirit, we're walking in the center of God's will, guess what? Life's not going to be perfect. Amen? Trials are still going to be there. The difference is that walking in the fullness of the Spirit, we can have victory in the midst of any circumstances if we'll keep our eyes on Jesus. And so that's what he's preparing them for. Okay, guys, you're going in, and you need to understand trials are waiting for you. And two weeks ago, remember the cities of refuge? Remember talking about that? Jesus is our refuge. And he told them when you head in, you know what? You need to make cities of refuge, a place that a manslayer, where you get the word manslaughter, can flee to. He said, make sure they're close by every city. Make sure they're easy to access. Make sure that the roads are clear. Make sure that they don't have to cross over a mountain. They don't have to go through a river to get there. And it's a picture of the fact that Jesus is always near to us. That that place of safety, we don't have to climb over a hill. We don't have to do great works. We just have to turn our lives to Him. And then last week, we saw the heart for battle. And if you remember, He told them as they were getting ready to go into battle, that certain people needed to just go home. You guys remember this? He said, hey, if your family's not in order, if your home has not been made ready and you haven't moved into it yet, go home. If the vineyard's been planted and you haven't tasted the fruit of your labor yet, go home. If you've been betrothed to a wife and you haven't married her yet, go home. Why did he tell them this? Because he did not want an army that was divided in its passions. And you know what? We should not be involved in ministry if we haven't taken care of the first ministries. If our home's not in order, if we're not providing for our family, and if we're not ministering to our wife, we've got no business doing anything else until those things are being done. So he said, go home. And you know what I love about it is that God's not worried about whether or not his his army's going to win. Because you plus God is a majority, amen? And he said, you know, you can all go home. I'll find it by myself if I have to. I'll take one guy if I need to. And so he had an army that was left that was undivided in focus, and they were going to be headed out to, to battle the enemy. Now, tonight, we're going to be looking at, and I first want to give you the, the literal breakdown of the text. Because there's three ways, really, to look at the text. And I want to talk about that with you tonight. It's called Observation, Interpretation, Application. Those of you who have taken inductive Bible study, you under, we've talked about that. What does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply to my life? That's how I prepare and study the Bible. If you've gone through the inductive Bible study class, you'll hear me teach and you'll go, oh, that's an interpretation. Oh, that's an application. And it gives you greater understanding of the depth of the text. Anybody can do it. It takes time. If you're diligent and faithful, you can do it. You just have to want to do it. You have to make a decision that you're going to do it, okay? Now, the literal translation of this text or these chapters, this chapter itself, if I just took it literally and just talked about how it applied to the children of Israel, I would say that in tonight's chapter we'll see that the land may be cleansed, that women that were taken captive were not to be taken advantage of, that children would be given their proper inheritance, that rebellious children would receive the appropriate punishment, and that they would not defile the land God was giving them by leaving dead bodies out overnight. Now, how many of you would be really thrilled about hearing a message on that stuff? Okay, few of you, God bless you, all right? Most of the time, I don't take what is the observation as the title for the message. If I title the message, I don't even know what I title that. I'll be honest with you. Because what I do instead, typically, is I don't give the, I don't give the, the observation as being the, the points in the message. Instead, I use the application 
as being the points in the message. Observation, what does it say? Interpretation, what does it mean? Application, how does it apply to my life? So instead of entitling it, cleansing the land of Canaan, you'd be like, well, that sounds wonderful. You know, some of you, okay, great, cleansing the land of Canaan. But what if the title of the message instead was a recipe for a godly home? Does that sound something more intriguing to you than cleansing the land of Canaan? Cleansing, cleansing, I'll remember that if I'm ever in Canaan, right? But a recipe for a godly home or keys to a godly home, what is the difference? It's the exact same chapter. The points are really the same. One emphasizes the application instead of emphasizing the interpretation or emphasizing the observation. Not just what does it say, not just what does it mean, but how does it apply to my life? I truly believe where the gift of teaching is really evident in somebody is the ability to bring out the applications. Because anybody can observe it, what does it say? Well, I can write that down, and I can interpret it. What does it mean? I can look at my Greek and Hebrew lexicon. I can do that stuff. But how do I apply it? There's no book to look in to apply it. You can do it. You can observe it. You can interpret it. But the gift of teaching comes out in the ability to apply it. And so I've, I've sat down with people, and I realize they don't have the gift of teaching, and that's okay. But they'll go through the text, and they just don't see any applications. And I'm reading it going, there's about 300 in here. There's another one, another one. What are you talking about? And they're like, I don't see it. And it's the gift of teaching. But again, so as we go through this, hopefully you'll you'll walk away with a little bit better understanding. So I could have titled it Living Godly Lives in Canaan, Cleansing of the Land, Respect Towards Those You Capture, Continuing to Honor Your Firstborn, Discipline for Those Who Walk in Rebellion, Don't Allow Dead Bodies to Defile the Land. That's the observation part, okay? And you'd be like, okay, that's great. I'm going to get this CD, man. It's going to be sweet. Now instead, moving from the interpretation or observation that you have to make to understand the text and bring it to an application. So instead of living godly lives in Canaan, the title of the message, looking at the observation, is a recipe or or keys to a godly home. Instead of cleansing of the land or is is cleansing your home of ungodliness. Instead of respect toward those you capture, get married for the right reason. Which of those sounds more appealing to you? Respect those you capture, or get married for the right reason. All right? Again, all of this, and the funny part is, just to show the frailties of your pet, you already know I'm frail, but just to make it real transparent, it sometimes takes me 20 hours to get the outline. I'm slow. I'm just slow, that's it. You know, I've told our guys I'm slow, that's all there is to it. I'm always going to be slow, unless God does something else. But sometimes it takes me that long to get the outline, because God's showing me the focus and the applications, and, and it takes me time. And so if you want, to, you want to know the Word of God, spend time in God's Word. Instead of continuing to honor the firstborn, it's be a godly parent to all of your children. We'll talk about that as we get to it. Instead of discipline for those who walk in rebellion, it's love your children enough to discipline them. Shouldn't we love our children enough to discipline them? Absolutely. Again, do you see the difference between the interpretation or the observation and the application? So sometimes you look at it and you think, you're not thinking, how does this apply to me? You're just trying to understand, so who cares? Why are they leaving dead bodies on a stick overnight? I don't understand this, right? What has this got to do with me? How does this apply to my life? And again, if it just helps you to look at things a little bit different. And then don't allow dead bodies to defile the land. Okay, no. That... I titled that, Don't Harbor Resentment for the Past. Don't Harbor Resentment for Past Sin. And these are all things that we should see, again, in a godly home. So a recipe for a godly home. Cleanse your home of ungodliness. Get married for the right reason. 
Be a godly parent to all of your children. Love your children enough to discipline them and don't harbor resentment for past sin. Now, does that sound a little more like it might have something to do with your life as opposed to don't hang dead bodies out overnight, right? Amen? And so, just to help you guys, that's just a small little thing, and I might point out a few more. Now, on top of that, on top of that in the Old Testament, not only do we look at observation, interpretation, and application, but we're always looking for type, typology, foreshadowing, because all of the Old Testament is pointing to things that will be fulfilled in the New Testament. Things will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So along with looking at the observation and the interpretation, what does it say, what does it mean, how does it apply to my life, we're always looking for Jesus in every verse. And so that's all part of the, you're already tired already, aren't you? Man, no wonder it takes him 30 hours. But that's, it is, it is a matter of taking time. So tonight, a recipe for a godly home. Cleanse your home of ungodliness. And I put some subtitles here. Take responsibility, provide covering, and then I put be a godly mom and dad. Be a godly mom and dad. Now you're going to read the first part of this chapter and think, how in the world did he get be a godly mom and dad out of this? But again, we'll go through it, but I'll also try to point you and show you how God reveals some of this stuff to me. Verse 1. If anyone is found slain, lying in the field in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance from the slain man to the surrounding cities. Now that sounds like something about godly parenting, doesn't it? No. Okay. We'll get there. Now, in the promised land... He says, what are the first three words? If anyone is found slain. When they go in the land of promise, guess what? There's still going to be war, and there's still going to be death. There's still going to be trials, and there's still going to be troubles. So he says, if anyone is found slain, lying in the field in the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and it is not known who killed him. So, we know that as they went in, that there was still going to be war, there's still going to be death, there's still going to be idols. And so too, it is with you and I in our walk with the Lord. Even as we walk in the center of God's will, there's going to be trials, struggles, and difficulty. Now, what would that be if, if what I just read was the observation and what I just read right now? So, too, as you and I walk in the Lord, that would be the what? The application. Do you understand that, he under, that he's telling him, as you go into the land, you're going to find difficulty. As you go into the land, there's going to be idols. As you go into the land, there's going to be people dying. As you go into the land, the battles are going to keep raging. And the application would be that even as you and I walk in the center of God's will, even as we head into the land of promise, even as we're walking the the complete walk that God has called us to, guess what? We too are going to face the same things. That's the application. That's taking something in God's word and then applying it to our lives. So there are going to be trials and struggles and difficulty impacting our homes and our individual walks. The key is how we respond. So it says there, if anyone is found slain, now, this is a, an unavenged murder. If you guys remember from a couple weeks ago, if somebody died and a family member found out about it and they knew the person that killed them, what would they, what would they do? They'd go kill them. And that's why they ran away and ran to the city of refuge and they had to stay there until when? Until the high priest died. They could go there and if they were found not guilty, they still had to pay the punishment of accidental death and they couldn't leave until the high priest died. Why? Who's the high priest? Who's the great high priest? Jesus Christ. When he suffered and died on the cross, we are all set free from sin and death. Praise God. And so it's all again a type or a picture of the Lord. But innocent bloodshed 
that had not been atoned for was going to require some type of payment. And it says in Numbers 35, So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. Therefore do not defile the land which you inhabit in the midst of which I dwell, for I the Lord dwell among the children of Israel. So the, Lord, the land belonged to God, he was literally allowing them to live in it, and he said, if somebody kills somebody, then blood must be shed. Now why is that? If there is death, if there is sin, there must be bloodshed. Why? What does it point to? Points to the cross. And repeatedly, he never, he never said, take death lightly. Take sin lightly. Whenever there was sin, there had to be How many sacrifices? If you were here in Leviticus, remember we talk about it being the bloodiest book in the Bible. The word blood is all over that book. And you look at it, some people don't even like to read it. It's so bloody. But it's bloody because sin has consequences. And sin requires atonement. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but blood of Jesus. So we need to understand that. And every time there's sin, he never just says, oh, with that one, just let it slide. There always must be the shedding of blood for the, for the forgiveness of sin. Always. And so he says, if there's one found slain, then you go to the elders and judges, so go out and measure the distance from the slain man to the surrounding cities. Now again, the sin grieved the heart of God, and it couldn't just be overlooked. So now the elders had to go out and find out who was closest to where the person had died. You know, you've got to understand, part of the territory they took over, they planted cities in different places, but a lot of it was still wildernessy, or, you know, it was out in the middle of nowhere, kind of. And there was a lot of spot between, there was a land flowing with milk and honey, but at the same time, there could be a great distance between cities. And somebody, maybe a thief, saw a guy going along a trail, and he jumped on him at night, and he killed him, and left his body there. And then a few weeks later, somebody comes along and finds the body. What are they supposed to do? Well, they found out which city was closest by, and, that, and they were to take authority or jurisdiction over this person's death. Now, in a godly home, somebody must be the authority. Somebody must take authority. One of the biggest reasons why Christians home, Christian homes struggle is because men refuse to be the spiritual leader God's called them to be. Period. Guys, if you're not being, repent and start doing it now. Amen? God didn't say, well, you know, maybe my wife's more spiritual. God didn't tell you to do that. God said, you be the spiritual leader. You take the initiative. You be the one to do it. Because if there's a lack of somebody taking authority or responsibility, guess what? That body would light up there forever. And wouldn't the easiest thing to do, if you're an elder and you're up in the city and you find out that 30 miles away there's a dead body, who wants to sign up for that program? Oh, okay, I'll go out there and drag that dead carcass in. Is that what you want to do? We don't want to do it. And often the authority that God's given us is something we don't want to do. It's so much easier to just eat chips and watch TV, right? It's so much easier just to do nothing than to do something. It's a, it requires effort. And he says, you gotta, now that meant all the guys in the surrounding city had to go out and measure. So even if it was, ended up not being, okay, I got it. All right, there's a dead body. Everybody, let's go measure, right? Let's find out who's the authority here. Let's find out who's supposed to take the position of ministering to them. Before the cleansing could take place, authority had to be established who was closest to where the offense took place. And too often today, we want to look the other way or pass the buck. Let someone else deal with the problem. Let the teacher at the school be responsible for educating and disciplining my child. You don't want that. Amen? But too often, that's what people do. Well, you go to school for that. Somebody that ever take care of that. You know what? Here's another one. 
leave all my children's understanding of God's word up to the Sunday school teacher. Al, right? Do we have Sunday school teachers here who teach our kids the word? Absolutely. Should we be the primary person that teaches our kid the word? Absolutely. God has called us to be the spiritual leader in our children's lives. God has called you to be the one that educates them in the truth of God's word, the one who prays with them, the one that leads them, the one that's a godly example before them. What they get at church ought to be gravy, amen, to what they get at home. But too often we want to just let someone else do it. Let their friends, TV, movies, music, give them direction for life. A lot of parents do that. Put them down, sit, you know, sit them down at four years old in front of a video. There you go. Leave them for four hours. Eh, right? Kids walk around and around. Right? You know? And that's their whole life, right? The, the, the video babysitter. In many Christian homes, authority needs to be reestablished. Most, most specifically, the elders in the home need to take the, take the next step to love, teach, disciple, and discipline their children. Okay? And that begins with you, Dad. You're first. There's no dad at home, mom, that's you now, okay? And you need to take the step to do that. And if you don't do it, you will regret it. You will. Because your children know that what they, they do, they absolutely need it. And they won't always be happy about it. You know, I just got a call from a mom. It just cracks me up how sometimes moms think they can call me and convince me to let my kids do stuff I've already told them no to. You ever had this happen? <laughs> Lady calls me up and wants one of my children to go on this overnighter with guys and girls on this island, and they're all going to be sleeping out on the beach. I'm like, yeah, that'll be happening real soon. And she's like, but, you know, don't you think it's important that your kids experience things? And I go, uh, no. Uh, no. Absolutely not. Do I think my kids should get drunk and do drugs and get sexually transmitted diseases to prove they've been through life? No. That's why I'm her dad, Right? Or his dad, right? I'm the, I'm the dad. No, absolutely not. Now, our kids, they don't, you know, they don't understand. They don't grasp it yet. That's why God gives them parents. And I have to tell parents all the time, be the parent. But my kid, what? that's irrelevant. But my 15-year-old says, you're not going to church anymore. Okay, and what's that got to do with anything? First of all, until they're 18, they're going to do exactly what I say. And after 18, if they think they can do what they want, they can, but they won't live at my house. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I love you, and you know what? If you're here, you go to church Sunday, you go to church Wednesday, you're involved with the youth group, period. And if you don't want to go, well, your bags are on the front porch. You deliver them over. Why? Because you cannot compromise in your home. Deliver the evil out from amongst you. And he says, look, you're going to have to find the one who has jurisdiction, and that person's got to take authority. You know why? Because if nobody does, the land will be defiled, as we just read in Numbers 33. If nobody goes out there and takes care of it, the whole land's going to be corrupted. And if nobody reaches out and ministers to your kids, your entire home's going to be corrupted. If you just let it run rampant, it's not going to change. And again, I, I tell each of my kids, I told my daughter this when she started high school, I love you enough to have you be mad at me for the next four years. I love you enough to have you mad at me in the next four years. That's okay. You're my daughter. I love you. When I walk you down the aisle and I put your hand in that man's hand when you're 35 or whenever that happens, <laughs> when, I, when I do that, then I let go of authority in your life. But until then, and I love what she says, Dad, all the guys at school are afraid of you. I said, oh, that's good. That's so good. Praise the Lord. 
couple guys from her school came to church a couple Sundays ago, and they came to meet me. And these are big, fo- they're bigger than me, football players, right? I went to meet them, they're like, <laughs> hey, how you doing? What's up with that? Oh, man, they're, they're scared of you. Oh, praise the Lord, that's good. Be afraid, be very afraid. So you go out and you establish the authority. Look what it says. And it shall be that the elders of the city nearest the slain man will take a heifer which has not been yoked, which has not been pulled with a yoke. The elders of the city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with flowing water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Now once the authority had been established, these elders were were responsible to make a sacrifice to atone for and cleanse the land from the pollution that came from murder. So they took a heifer to the place of the murderer, and then they, it, to take the place of the murderer, it had to be full-grown and strong, yet it could not have been profaned by human use. It couldn't have been used to, to work in any way. So it had to be brought out, and it says, they, what did they do there? They broke its neck. Now, you need to understand something. that cities were almost always built on hills then. And so what they did was, they had to go into the city and get a heifer, and bring that heifer down, so it required work. Something had to be done to pay the price for sin. And so they brought it out of the hilltops and down into the valley. And down in the valley is where they broke the heifer's neck and where its blood was shed. Now, to me, you may not see this. Again, this is the application part. This is such a clear picture of Jesus leaving heaven and coming to earth in my mind. Leaving the city and going down into the valley. Why does it say down into the valley in the Bible? You think it's in there for a reason? What's the answer to that every time? Yes. Is it in the Bible for a reason? Yes. Okay. Every time. And so they bring come from the city, from the hilltop, down into the valley. They brought this heifer. Okay. Now, the heifer, again, was taking the place of the murderer. The heifer was, blood was going to be shed in place of the murderer who deserved to have his blood shed. Who is that a picture of? Jesus Christ, okay? So again, as, I'm re- as you study this, you start to see Christ. You say, okay, why are they bringing it from the city down to the valley? What does that... Well, again, it's all a picture of the Lord. They broke its neck. Again, points to being a sin offering. In Exodus 32, what, or 13, what did they do to every sin offering? They broke its neck. So there's a picture of a sin offering. Substitution. Price being paid for one who, d- who got away with it seemingly. Now... What else is that a picture of? The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So even this guy that we don't even know who he is. We don't even know where he is. We don't even know how it happened. And yet his sin, in a sense, is being atoned for to cleanse the land. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? We weren't even alive yet. We weren't even breathing yet. We didn't exist yet. And he paid for our sin already. Again, another picture of the Lord so clearly here. But again, authority had to be taken by the elders, those in charge in the city. If they didn't step up and do it, then the entire city was going to be defiled. The entire land would be defiled. If mom and dad don't step up and do it, the entire home's going to be defiled. Mom and dad don't take a stand for God. And again, it's not always easy to do it, but it's much harder not to in the long run. Amen? It's not always easy to look at your... Because you know what? We're all parents, and we got that wimpy side of us, don't we? Well, come on, please. Right? And you know, well, I just want to make them happy. Make them happy. Uh, No. That's fleshly happy. Amen? And we don't want them to be fleshly happy. 
We want them to be spiritually joyous. And so the blood was shed and the blood was sprinkled. Verse 5. The priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near. For the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and bless the name of the Lord. By the word, every controversy and every assault shall be settled. So who are the Levites? They were the tribe called by God to serve in the tabernacle and to righteously judge. Why did God call Levi out of the 12 tribes? Because they were the one tribe at Mount Sinai when he came down and, fought and saw them in sexual immorality and worshiping the golden calf. When Moses said, whoever's on the Lord's side, come to me, every single one of the Levites came. And right then God said, okay, you're, you're my guys. Now, for that, they got no inheritance in the land. Doesn't that seem like a gyp? We came to you, we get nothing? No, he says, you know what? I'm your inheritance. You get to serve me full time. You get to be focused on me. You don't need to worry about tilling the land or doing anything else. You just serve me full time. I think that's the greatest inheritance anybody could ever get. Amen? And so often we think, again, in ministry, maybe we don't own houses or own things because of the income and things like that. But the greatest, to me, the greatest calling in the world is doing what I get to do. And I don't care. Who cares? That stuff's chaff anyway, right? We're going to get to heaven and wish we had more stuff. Man, I just wish I had more stuff. You know, Lord, I got some questions. How come I never got the Maserati? I'm just wondering, right? No, we're not going to be doing that. We're going to stand before God, wishing we had done more for the kingdom. And all the elders of the city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. Then they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed his blood, nor have our eyes seen it. So they go out, and they shed its blood, and then the elders wash their hands, symbolizing their innocence. Symbolizing that they did not commit the crime. Symbolizing that we don't know who did it. We've been diligent to find out. We've been unable to find out who it is. We've done all that we could do to settle this matter, but we cannot. And you know what? We are removed from all guilt for this man. The elders had to take responsibility for all that went on under their authority to, to pursue, diligently pursue righteous judgment. Hey, if I'm your pastor and something's going on in this body and I just ignore it, I'm going to be guilty before God for that. And it's not always popular to have to have conversations with people. You know, people think a lot of times that the pastor gets up and teaches two hours a week. What a sweet gig, two hours a week. That's pretty nice, right? And I tell guys all the time in ministry, that's so small a portion of what a pastor does. Praying, interceding, ministering, counseling, all those other things. And so these guys were accountable to make sure they were diligent to find out who had done this crime. And if they could not find him, then they washed their hands to say they were innocent of the blood. Now look what it says in verse 8 and 9. We're going to see Jesus again. Provide atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. And do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel. And atonement shall be provided on their behalf for the blood. Now, provide atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. And do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel. Where else do we see this? Jesus said those exact words. Not only that, where else do we see the washing of the hands proclaiming to be innocent? Who did that? Pontius Pilate. When Jesus went to the cross, and you know what? I believe Pilate learned this exercise from this chapter. He learned it from the Jews who had done it because of this chapter. And so they went, and he knew that the Jews washed their hands and say, we're innocent of the blood. And so he washed his hands and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. You know what? You can wash your hands all day. It doesn't make you innocent. Amen? And what's interesting is, at the, at the time of the crucifixion, he said, I'm, not in, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And what did the people say? Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. Ooh. 
That's heavy, isn't it? Let, it? let his blood be on us. We'll take it. Put it on us. How's things been working out for Israel ever since then? Been pretty rough. Amen? And the Lord, even after all that, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Amen? And so... It's only possible through a blood sacrifice, so the blood had to be shed, the blood was shed, and they said, provide atonement, O Lord. Atonement cannot come apart from bloodshed. Impossible. Without the shedding of blood, no forgiveness for sin. All of the Old Testament bloodshed was pointing to the cross. Every single bit of it. That's why nobody else can pay the price for your sin. Because nobody, else, nobody else's blood was shed, and, and even if it were, nobody else rose from the dead. Amen? That's why Jesus Christ alone. So the heifer paid the price... So they would not have to. Just like Jesus paid the price so that you and I would not have to. Now this clearly relates again to the atoning work of the cross. And do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people. Again, the same thing was said at the time of the cross. Let it, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And the people replied, let his blood be upon us. And like the innocent heifer, Jesus died for the nation. And then again, prayed for them on the cross. Now this whole ritual speaks of God's grace. Because we see again that man's work could never earn forgiveness. The heifer had never been worked. The ground where the sacrifice took place had never been uh, tilled or turned up. And the elders, judges, and priests had done nothing to earn God's forgiveness. They, didn't, they did nothing. And God forgave them. They did nothing. And God restored the land. They did nothing. The heifer paid the price pointing to Christ. And they did nothing. This is significant because the Bible says, it, For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's why salvation is a free gift. If you had to earn it, it would be a paycheck. Amen? And we didn't earn it. He paid the price. And praise God for that. Now look what it says here. So you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Repeatedly in this book, he says, put the evil away from among you. Put the evil away from among you. So when is the guilt, when is the evil taken away from them? When you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. When they follow God's instructions for atonement. Removal of guilt always is based on the substitutionary blood atonement, looking forward again to the cross. So our lives, our homes, our land are polluted by sin and rebellion. Every one of us. Our land, they're polluted by sin and rebellion. In our own individual lives, may we never take sin lightly. Amen? Sin is not something we should say, oh, it's no big deal, I'm forgiven. That's what Satan tells you, isn't it? You're forgiven. Don't sweat it. Just keep doing it. Right? But Satan, he did, uh, I know I'm not the only one. He whispers in the ear, doesn't he? Okay, we'll forgive you. Ever heard that? He'll forgive you anyway. Just, right? Your flesh will never be satisfied. Amen? Ever. The more you feed it, the more it wants. The hungrier it gets. And so he says here very clearly, you need to put the guilt away from you and how, of this innocent blood. How do you do it? By doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. So a recipe for a godly home. Cleanse your home. How do you do that? You establish godly authority in your home. You take responsibility to love, lead, and disciple those who God has put in your care. Just like these elders. They were, it was easy to ignore it, and God told them, you go out there and take care of it. But I, I didn't even do it. doesn't matter. Go take care of it. They're under your authority. You go minister to them. If you don't do it, the lamb will be cursed. If you don't take the authority in your home, your family's going to have problems. Your children are going to have problems. 
Your children are going to suffer consequences. They don't have to if you will simply step up and take authority in your house. doesn't mean your kids will always respond to the authority that you take in your home. Sometimes they're going to rebel even more. But you need to trust God in those circumstances. Amen? You need not to bow down and back away so that they'll... Oh, well, if I, if I just am more easygoing, then no. God's called us to take responsibility, to love, lead, and disciple those who God has put in our care, to provide covering for our family, to intercede on their behalf. These elders, what else were they supposed to do? They're supposed to, and the priest, pray for the people, intercede for the people, and be the ones who step in the gap when something's been wronged to bring cleansing back to the land. That's exactly what mom and dad ought to be doing at home. Amen? When things have gone wrong, let's fix it. Let's go before the Lord. Let's intercede for our kids. You know, one of my favorite things to do is pray for my kids. It's one of my favorite things to do. And I think I've told you guys this story before, but it, it just so, it shows you what happens if you do this. Go in and lay hands on my kids at night and pray for them. Put my hand on their forehead and pray for each one of them. And I'll never forget one time I was violently ill and it was worth it. I had a 104 degree temperature. I was sleeping on the sofa because I didn't want to get my wife sick. I got the cold sweats and the whole thing. Middle of the night, I hear somebody come downstairs. This is probably seven, eight years ago. And I hear someone go in the kitchen, and I'm kind of laying there, and, and as I'm sleeping, I feel this little hand on my head. And I start to hear this, that my seven-year-old daughter praying for me. Now, where did she learn that? You know, you pray for your kids, and your kids will start praying for you. You be a godly example for your child. Give me a 105-degree temperature all day long for that. Right, amen? It's worth it. Because you get to see, and again, so it's so important that we take the initiative. What if these elders just said, I don't care about the land. Who cares? I'm busy. I got stuff to do. I'm playing golf right now. You know? You know, don't you know I'm in the fourth quarter of my video game? Talk to me later, right? And too often we can get so absorbed with the things of this world that we let the, what's really significant slide by. And God says, stop what you're doing. You take the authority and you go down there or the land's not going to be cleansed. And the guilt will only be removed when you obey me. It'll only be removed when you come before me, when you intercede for those who you're called to minister to. Now, switching gears. Get married for the right reason. How many single people we got here tonight? Okay, listen up. Amen? Listen up. And I'm going to read this, you're going to go, what in the world has this got to do with getting married for the right reason? When you first read this, you're going to think, this is just, why is this in the Bible? When we're done, I hope you understand. Look what it says. I'm going to read verse 10 through 14. When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire and would take her for your wife, then you shall bring her home to your house, and shall shave her head and trim her nails. Taking notes, guys? Okay. She shall put off the clothes for her captivity, remain in your house, and mourn her father and her mother for a full month. After that, you may go into her and be your husband, and she shall be your wife. And it shall be, if you have no delight in her, then you shall set her free. But you surely shall not sell her for money. You shall not treat her br- brutally, because you have humbled her. Now, what in the world has that got to do with us? Let me tell you. First of all, get married for the right reason. Godly partnership, not phys- just physical passion. Can I tell you, you know, here's, I'm just going to be, the number one reason why we do counseling with married couples is they run off and get married like that. We know each other four days, we've got to get married, right? And it happens all the time. All the time. They don't want to spend any pre-marriage counseling time, so we instead counsel them for three years after they've been married. Because they, 
They go, well, I didn't know him when I got, well, duh, you should have got to know him first. And it's so often, I can't tell you, I've met people that they're, they got, they're fighting with each other like cats and dogs on Wednesday and they show up on Sunday married. I'm like, what? You're out of, okay. Just block out some time. The calls are coming, right? I mean, and so often what happens is we get married based on the physical. We get married for the wrong reason. I need to understand that when they went into battle, they were going to go out and they were going to conquer other lands. And when you conquered a land, you were able to take the spoils of the land. And one of the things that they often took was beautiful women. It's called raping and pillaging. Where do you think that term comes from? And so the Lord says, no, 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 no. That's not what you're going to do. You're not going to see a beautiful woman and because you have a desire for her, drag her into a tent. That's not going to happen. Here's what you're going to do instead. You're going to take her home and shave her head. Then you're going to clip her nails and you're going to basically remove all signs of beauty from her. Okay, then you're going to let her mourn in sackcloth and ashes for an entire month for her father and mother who died or who she's been separated from. And at the end of all the mourning and wailing and sackcloth and ashes and a shaved head and no fingernails, if you still want her, you can have her. (laughs) This was taking away the whole just physical thing, right? It was taking away just getting married to somebody, right? Because, you know. People say to me, I'm in love. No, you're in heat, right? You need to slow down. You need to step back a little bit, right? And too often, and this is what the Lord has committed. Now, this would have been a shock to them. This would have been a, what? I can't just grab a woman I want and take her. No, you can't do that. Take her back to your house for a month. You don't touch her. She shaves her head. She's humbled. She puts on sackcloth and ashes. She mourns for her former life, but at the same time, We get to see and know this woman. I get to spend a month with her without physical contact. I get to build a relationship that's not based on the physical, but it's based on on friendship and relationship. I also get to watch and see if she's going to leave her former gods and follow the true God of Israel now. We've brought them out of captivity, wiped out all their idols, we brought them into the land. I get to see what her walk is going to be like with the true and living God. Are we hearing a few things we might need to know before we get married? You want to know where somebody's walk is with the Lord. You want to build a friendship and relationship first. And, and again, will there be a physical attraction? Of course there will be. But if that's what your relationship is built on, it's not going to last. It absolutely will not last. Hey, I've been married 20 years, and my wife's a babe. That's all there is to it. My wife's beautiful, and I'm as attracted to her today as I was when I met her. But you know what? That's not what holds our marriage together. It's having the Lord at the center of our home. It's that supernatural agape love that he's given me for my wife. That's what holds our marriage together. And so he's telling these guys, look, when you take them captive in the old days, I know understand how it goes in the world, but we're not doing it that way. We're not doing it the world's way. We're doing it God's way. Guess what? We need not to be dating the world's way. We need to be doing things God's way. Dating is not biblical. And I get more heat for that, and I don't care. All right, that's all right. Just put it on the list. It's okay. Do you know dating is less than 100 years old? Do you know that there was only courtship? Now, there was prostitution and all that other garbage, but there was no, you know, you didn't just date this person and date that person. And date, that didn't happen. You wanted to go out with somebody, you had to go ask dad for permission. I like that. I really do. I think we need a little more of that. I, I want that guy to, and you know what? If he can endure talking to me, then okay, that's a step in the right direction. Amen? 
But he needs to, they need to come with respect. They need to come with honor. And instead of this, I'm going to you know, go to a bar and get lit so I lose some inhibitions and then meet somebody. You know, I'm gonna, uh, right, and then meet a girl. Oh, that worked out great, didn't it? Wonder why we're struggling. It's built solely on the flesh. It's built solely on the, the physical desire. And man, can you imagine the shocking? Now, when you go and you, and you find a beautiful woman, you want to take her for a wife? Yeah, yeah. Shave her head. Put in your house, clip her toenails. Put sackcloth on her and let her mourn for a month. So now they're seeing a pretty girl, right? They go in, they capture a land. They say, oh, I'll let that go by. I think, you know, I'm not ready for that right now, right? I think I'll just, I think I'll just wait, you know? Maybe I'll meet a nice girl at home and I won't have to shave her head, right? I think I'll just, you know what? We should count the cost ahead of time, amen? Again, the woman was not to be ravaged in battle, but brought into his home, humbled. And again, put off the clothes of her captivity to show that change of allegiance. She mourned her father and mother. This is a picture of leaving and cleaving. Mourning her father and mother. I'm separated from the life I had, and now... And again, it's important to see if that process takes place. And again, I hear so often, I didn't know this person when I married him. Whose fault is that? It's your fault. You know, in the Bible, there's a, in the Old Testament times, and even the New Testament times, there was a one-year betrothal period, and I like that. Too often we think we've got to close the deal, right, guys? Well, she's really cute. I better ask her now or someone else is going to get her, right? Slow down. Be patient. If it's the man or the woman God has for you, they're not going anywhere. Amen? If you have to close the deal, then they weren't yours to begin with. And again, if you'll wait and be patient. And you know what's interesting? He would see the worst of her and then want to marry her anyway. And I believe that you need to be in a relationship long enough where you've seen the person at their worst. Not where they're just putting on their courtship face. You're so wonderful and beautiful. Here's some flowers, right? You know what I mean? And then you get married, it all comes to a screaming halt, right? But they need to see you at your worst. They need to see you, you know, in the difficult times. And that's why it's good to be still. That's why it's good to slow down. So again, here's some godly directions for those of you who are single. Again, it kept men from acting rashly just to satisfy their physical desires. And again, it made them take time to really get to know the woman before they married her. And for us today, love is patient. If you truly love one another, it will stand the test of time. Again, you don't have to close the deal. Now, remember Jacob? How long did he work for Rachel? 14 years total. But the second seven years, he said, was like days to him. Why? Because... He was truly, this is the woman God, this is it. This is the one I want. This is it. It's nothing to me. I'll wait. And I want to encourage those of you who are single. If at the end of the month, in verse 14, having gotten to know her, he didn't think this is such a great idea, he could let her go free. But he couldn't sell her. I like that. I'm glad. You know, can you imagine? So if she stayed at his house for a month, and at the end of the month, he went, you know what? No. This is not working for me. Or maybe it could be that she didn't really turn her heart toward the true and living God. It could be a lot of different reasons, but he realizes this is not the one. And so he is to let her go free. He's not to treat her with brutality because he had humbled her. You know what, guys, can I say this to you guys especially? Don't string women along. Don't do it. It's too much of that. I know a guy who's been dating a Christian girl eight years. I just flat out said, dude, that's wrong. I'm sorry. Well, I'm just not ready to get married. What? Eight years? Eight years? After I know my wife, eight years, we had four kids. Eight years? What are you waiting for, right? Now, I think you can, 
move too quickly, and I think you can be, you know, a little on the cautious side. Well, I want to see how she is, you know, when she has gray hair before I, you know. So it says here, right, you court her. If this is not the woman got out, let her go. Let her go. Don't hurt her feelings. Don't string her along longer than you should. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Lord, is this the woman, is this the man God has for me? Courtship to marriage. So a recipe for a godly home. Cleanse your home of ungodliness. Take responsibility. Pride covering. Provide covering. Get married for the right reason. Godly partnership, not just physical passion. I'm way behind. Verse 15. If a man has two wives, that, first of all, uh, problem. If a man has two wives, okay, period, done. All right, that's it, right? Garden, one man, one woman, lifetime. Amen? God's highest. One man. Now, did God bring him five women? One. Amen? One woman. That's it. Okay? Now, polygamy is never God's plan, but don't we see polygamists all over the Old Testament? Yes, we do. Because it's in the Old Testament or because it's in the New Testament, does that mean it's got absolutely not? Because you've got to remember, the people in the Bible are people. Amen? And often we think, oh, but that's, you know, that's David, the adulterer, right? Right? That's King Solomon, a thousand wives, 700 concubines and wives, a thousand. He didn't even know their names. I'm convinced of it. He probably tried to marry some people twice. I mean, a thousand? Can't you imagine walking down the street? Well, she's fine. I'll take her. Oh, she's wife number 72. You married her for five years. Oh, okay. Never mind, right? I mean, that's way too many. That's not good. Polygamy is always bad. It's never God's plan. So if you have two wives, one loved and the other unloved, and they've borne him children, both the loved and the unloved, if the firstborn son is of her who is unloved, then it shall be on the day that he bequeaths his possessions to his son, that he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the love wife in, presence, in preference to the son of the unloved or the true firstborn. You know what? Here's the reason why two wives or two husbands makes zero sense. Because there will always be division. And there will always be one that's loved more than the other. And there will always be one that's not treated white and one that's left out. It will always be that way. Always. And so he says here very clearly... You're going to love one and hate the other. And if you, you have the wife that you love and her son, and then you want to bless him instead of the unloved wife's son. And God says, don't do that. Don't do that. Now, we're not polygamous today. At least I hope you're not. And if you are, we're counseling right after service, all right? We're not polygamous, but let me say this. It's divorce today. Because we do have multiple wives in that sense, or husbands, ex-wives, ex-husbands. And here's the application for this portion right here. There's a temptation, I believe, that people can fall into that now the ex-wife or ex-husband's a jerk. And, and it's disaster. And I don't even want to see him anymore. And you don't understand. He cheated on me or whatever, right? And so then you've got children in the middle. And now the poor children end up being the, the pawns that people use. And sometimes it even happens to where now the man or the woman goes and has a new spouse and has a new family. And this one's loving over here. Mom and dad love each other. The children are wonderful. And before you know it, the children over here get less and less attention. And before you know it, maybe the new wife says, I don't want 
those people coming into our family, you know, you go visit them when you want, but, you know, this is your family now. And before you know it, you're spending time with them and you're ministering to them and you don't have so much time for them anymore. And you know what? I believe there's a clear application in this text. He's saying, don't you dare forsake the firstborn of the unloved wife to only minister to the, the kids of the wife that you love now. You know what? God's, that's not God's highest at all. And you know what? You need to correct that if you're doing that. You need to make sure you have time for those children. Is it the children's fault? Did the children do it? Do they deserve as much of your time, as much as your, of your love, as much of your leading, as much of you ministering to them? Absolutely. And so I believe that's a clear application for this. And it may be a temptation, again, to treat or elevate the kids in the current family greater than the ones where there's difficulty. You must not forget or ignore your firstborn, your children from previous marriages. You know what? As a youth pastor, I heard for years, kids would come to me weeping. Why doesn't my dad spend time with me anymore? Why doesn't my dad love me anymore? Why doesn't my dad care about me anymore? Why doesn't my dad call me anymore? My dad used to have, we had such a great relationship. Now he's got a new wife and two new babies, and he just doesn't have time for me. I just dropped out of his life. He doesn't care about me anymore. I believe this is a clear application for a recipe for a godly home, is you love all your kids the same. Amen? And you, make, and you reach out to those who are away from you in a greater and a deeper way. The children are heartbroken, all but forgotten. Don't forget. Divorce destroys relationships. That's a fact. But you know what? Don't allow it to destroy your godly calling to be a parent. Divorce happens. It's never God's highest. But God is a forgiving God and a gracious God. And He's forgiven you. But now you need to move forward and again reach out to them. Be a dad. Be a mom who gives the firstborn a godly inheritance. Verse 17. But he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. Don't forsake your other children. Let's finish off. Verse 18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who when they have chastened him will not heed them, then his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city, to the gate of his city. So a recipe for a godly home is not only being a godly parent to all your children, but it's loving your children enough to discipline them. You know, I've heard people today saying that swatting your kids is barbaric. No, God gave them a big, fat rear end on the back for a reason. Bring the wood, it's okay. We have the Board of Education at home. It says the Board of Education on it. And when I swat, I swat with, with purpose. You know why? Because the Bible says that the rod or discipline will drive disobedience far from your children. And it's better that they get a swat in their rear end than that they end up getting harmed in a greater way by the world. Amen? And those who the Lord loves, He chastens or disciplines. And if we love our children... Now notice here, it says, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, the word here is not for a small child or a young teen. This is for a son or a daughter, you know, past the age of accountability, who makes a determined decision to rebel against mom and dad. And they've disciplined him. They've already done everything they can. They've taken out, I've I've disciplined them, I've set the standard, and he still says, I don't care. Then it says, the father and mother must bring them to the elders. Now, notice it's the father and the mother. Why? Because it has to come to the point where they both discipline him to the point where he's just not listening, and they're in agreement, we can't do anything about it. We've tried everything together. You know, sometimes my wife will be at the end of herself, one of the kids, and I'm not, or vice versa. God does that. But if they're both at the point where they've given up, they're both at the point where they can't, Discipline him anymore? It says, bring him to the elders. 
Remember this, a lack of discipline is a lack of love and it's disobedience to God's word, period. And you know what? Start disciplining them when they're young. Because if you don't, the results will be worse when they're older. And again, I want to make it clear because some of you may struggle with this, but you may have raised your kids in a, in a great way and they still rebel against God because they have free will. But we need to continue to raise them. And it says he will not heed. He won't listen to his parents. Then they bring him together and they brought him out to the elders. You know why? This is, what is this a picture of? What would this be close to, do you think? It's like taking your kids to, it, taking them to the authority they will recognize. What is the authority they will recognize? It may be the police. It may be, they may have to have something happen to them, right? You know, if my kids ever come home and they've committed a crime, I'm driving them straight down to the police station. I'm not passing go, nothing. Why? Because you take them to the authority they'll recognize. If they won't recognize mom and dad, take them to the one they will. Well, the elders, were, there was no police, right? So these are like taking them to the ultimate authority. And look what it says here. And they say to the elders of his city, the son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Guess what? The death penalty does work as a deterrent. It says all the people... Can you imagine if they stoned disobedient children today? Yeah, the whole generation would be gone. But you know what would happen? There would be a lot less disobedient children. Can you imagine if you went to school for 8th grade? You know, you're going to school in 8th grade, right? And all one, they got one of your friends against the wall and they're throwing rocks at him until he dies. And you're like... And your dad's over there flinging rocks with him? Because he's got... You know? Now... You'd be like, oh, what did he do? I'm not doing that, right? Because the realization is that sin does have consequences, and disobedience results in godly judgment. Now, what would happen, too, though, at the same time, is those who were stoning the, the child, what would they be thinking about their own children? Man, I need to get my kids' lives in order. When they watched the fallout of another child, it would convict them about what they needed to do with their own. And so, again... We need to discipline our kids when they're young or when they're older, they'll get stoned. <laughs> you guys are slow on that one. Discipline when they're... I'm sorry, that was weak. Last two verses. Don't harbor resentment for past sin. Oh, by the way, you know what verse 21 also does? It gives a greater light to the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son story? Luke 15. He goes out right? He commits wickedness. He's coming home. And what does the dad do? He runs out to meet him. Remember that? The fact that he ran out to meet him, I believe, is he wanted to protect him because he could have been stoned to death for his behavior. And he ran out and he put his arm around him and he walked back in with him so that the stones that they were thrown would hit the father in protection of the son. Prodigal son. That's what our Savior did for us. Amen? We were worthy. We were in rebellion. We deserved the stoning, and he took it for us. What a great picture. Last two verses. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Okay. If you killed somebody, and they would hang them on a tree as a representation to everybody else, this is the consequence of sin. But they were not to leave them overnight lest they defile the land. Now, do you think it would be a clear picture if you walked by and saw a body hanging on a tree? Absolutely. 
But they were not to leave it overnight. They were to bring it down before nightfall. What does that sound like? That's the cross. Look at the last of the verse says. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. Now I love this because later in Galatians 3, Paul applies this verse to the Lord. Saying Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Jesus not only died in our place, but he also took our place and was accursed of God, being hung on a tree. Now why did they take him down on Friday night? Because they didn't want to defile the land for Passover. Where did they get that? From this verse. This accursing on a tree was fulfilled by Christ, and the reason they brought him down was because of this verse. And he's the fulfillment of this verse. And now what I love about this is, if they left the body up there, there would have never been salvation, right? He had to come down off of the cross. He had to come down. And you know what? They brought him down and he rose from the dead. And you know what? That's why we don't have Jesus hanging on crosses anymore. Amen? Because he's not on the cross. He's a risen and living Savior who has triumphed over sin and death. For them, whenever they saw someone hanging in a tree, it was a vivid reminder of the heavy price of sin. When we, think of, when we look back to the cross, it's a vivid reminder of the heavy price of sin. The difference is, well, for you and I, it's a testimony to the fact that we have been forgiven, that the price has been paid, and it should be a reminder to us to forgive others. Amen? Forgive others as Christ has forgave you. I know we went long tonight. Forgive me. So a recipe for a godly home. Cleanse your home of ungodliness. Take responsibility. Provide covering. Be a godly mom and dad. Second, get married for the right reason. You want us to have a godly home? Start off right. Amen? Get married for a godly partnership, not just physical passion. Thirdly, be a godly parent to all of your children. Don't give your children less time, affection, and leadership than what God has called you to give them, whether it's the ones in your house or in another home. Love your children enough to discipline them. You know one of my favorite verses, Joshua twenty four fifteen. It's all over my house and posters. If you call my house and get my answer machine, it says on my answer machine. Hello, you've reached the Johnston residence, and it's for me and my house. We will serve the Lord. Joshua 24, 15, that should be our heart when it comes to our children. And don't harbor resentment for past sin. We should forgive and forget because that's what Jesus did. He forgave more to forgive others as Christ forgave us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord, that it has such clear application to our lives today. It has such clear pictures for us, Lord, that we are to take responsibility and authority in our homes and the areas of ministry you've called us to beginning with our families, with our children, with our spouses. Lord, to marry for the right reason. Lord, not by the world's standards, but to do court, to court according to your will. To pray for the man or woman God has for us. Someone who loves God as much as we do, if not more. Lord, also to love our kids enough to discipline them. To be faithful to minister to our children the way we've been called to. And Lord, to have forgiving hearts. Lord, not to harbor resentment, not to remain bitter. Lord, as you came down from the cross, as, the, as those who had died were removed, it was, again, to show grace and show that there can be forgiveness. That resentment and, and, and the sin doesn't go on forever. It can be forgiven. So Lord, we love you and we praise you. You're a great and awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. let's stand and close the worship song.